right now on Tech Radio, tomorrow's innovators today. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RTE Radio, we bring you the very latest in tech. This is episode 1001 and is one of our favourite shows of the entire year where we take you to visit the BT Young Scientists and Technology Exhibition at the RDS in Dublin. Every single year at this, we are just stunned by the ideas, the ways of thinking, and quite often the pure genius of our teenagers who will become the architects of our tomorrow. Remember, this is where the Collison brothers got their big break before going on to set up Stripe, one of the world's biggest payment processors. To check out what the future has in store for us, our editor-in-chief, Nal Kitson, went to the RDS and discovered loads about AI, social media, dangerous gases, and a whole lot more. From techcentral.ie, this is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. Live from the BT Young Scientists Exhibition 2024. Thanks, Dusty. Yes, I'm here at the RDS for the 60th Young Scientist and Technology Exhibition, and it is absolutely rammed here. So I'm going to try and walk the floor and give you a flavour of what's going on in the technology category and maybe even a little beyond. So let's go. Hi, uh, my name is Joe Malloy. I'm a third year from Gonzaga College and my project is correcting school exams with AI. Tell us a little bit about your methodology and what you found. All right, so um, simply put, I attempted to correct exams using an AI model that I developed software around. So basically it is a teacher would input a question and a student would then input their answer and that is all the manual activity that has to be done by the users. The AI will do all of the rest. It will come up with the answer to the question. It will then give a correction and feedback. And I found that the feedback is actually quite uh, beneficial. So what have you found then uh, in terms of teacher response to this? Have you found that it's generally positive or is it a question of, well, yeah, this is all very interesting, but you know, there's a lot of contextual things. There's a lot of things about making an argument that maybe isn't as easily replicated by an AI. Um, I've showed it to a number of teachers and they have all um, collectively agreed that this is a powerful tool that would be um, very suited in our everyday lives to help as a study tool for students and a uh, correction tool for teachers alike. And they all agreed that the um, feedback and corrections were actually quite accurate, which definitely shows the um, benefits of AI as a uh, feed of technology. Tech Radio. Live from the BT Young Scientists Exhibition. Uh, my name is Ava, and I'm from St. Joseph's Secondary School in Rush. And my project is building an algorithm that can detect brain tumors and their type from an MRI brain scan. So um, MRIs are typically the most used way of diagnosing a brain tumor. And a brain tumor is an abnormal growth of cells within the brain. And there's many different kinds of brain tumors, but around 90% of them fit into three categories, meningiomas, gliomas, and pituitary tumors. So I built an algorithm that can recognize these three kinds of tumors, and I built it um, by using online data sets. And these data sets contain thousands of images of each kind of tumor. And, for, and I put those into folders, into folders, and from those folders, I was able to build a model and what the model does is it tells the computer the different characteristics between each tumor. So this tumor is bigger, this tumor is smaller, um, the different locations that they might be in, and so on. 
um, and then I can put that model into a classification algorithm. And then using my classification algorithm, I can put in any MRI image of a brain scan and it'll give me an accurate diagnosis of its of a tumor and its type. And what has the, rep, the uh, reception been like for this so far? I mean, I imagine an awful lot of doctors would look at this and go, absolutely fantastic. This is something that will help reduce my error rate. Yeah, they actually have quite a high error rate. In some countries, it can be to 40%. Um, and I contacted a radiologist who would, um, that's who would be diagnosing the tumors um, from these MRI scans. And he said that it would actually be a really useful tool to use in hospitals. Um, obviously, the algorithm would have to be very accurate for it to be used in hospitals, which is why um, I created mine to be very, very accurate. Um, I made it accurate by using thousands of images, and I tested it around 15 times. Um, and each time it gave me an accurate diagnosis and a very high percentage of how likely it is to be that tumor. Every time I tested an image, I got 85% and up. My highest um, percentage or my best result that I got, it was 100% um, accurate that it was a pituitary tumor. Um, so I built my algorithm to be accurate as it be used on patients. Of course, no uh, science show is complete without mention of drones, and I happen to have found a, a drone-related project. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what your project is about. Yeah, hi, my name is Ian Colan. I'm from Kinsale Community School. And I was inspired because I just, well, I love the environment, drones and AI already, photography. So I built a drone that can take images and it analyzes them to see if there's fire in the images and also invasive species and analyzes the types of trees, the different species. And the idea be that it acts as an, in, um, an early warning system for fires and it could be used in maybe Australia. And it's also used here because it detects invasive species and it can detect what other species are in the image and you can model this over time. And it uses uh, convolutional neural networks. I'm not going to go into it. It's very confusing, even for me. But it basically extracts features, and it looks at it and says, these here, these are trees. And in these trees, um, there's these colors, and that means it has to be this species. That's as simple as. It works actually very well, uh, reaching a loss of 0.0012 which means it's losing no information, almost. Yeah, thank you. So I imagine there's an awful lot of interest from conservationists, from farmers, etc. What kind of feedback have you gotten so far? So far up here, I met a representative of the EPA. They haven't contacted me further. Um, but that's, the, that's the, the, the most of it so far. Maybe there might be more throughout the event, but um, I'll be ready. Tech Radio with Tomorrow's Innovators today. Hi, and my name is Charlie Gilan. I'm from St. Jared's School in Bray, County Wicklow. And I originally thought of this project idea because I looked at a lot of studies um, done by strong academic sources, and they all showed that there was a moderate link between social media and suicide. Um, but there see, the rates did not seem to be going down, even though all these studies are at. So I was left wondering, what are these big companies actually doing about the problem? And when I delved further into that, I realized that companies like TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, all short form content platforms, while they acknowledge the problem, they are doing nothing about it. It is simply about profits for them. The way their algorithms work is they are all about user interactivity, trying to find content that resonates with young people or their adolescent users. And basically, the way their algorithms work is 
there's a lot of harmful content on these platforms, which they say they block to write their community guidelines, for example, on TikTok, but they only, they block certain keywords like self-harm, but the creators will always find a way around this. For example, SH, the abbreviation for self-harm, if you look it up on TikTok, all these previous self-harm videos will be underneath that. And while the way the videos are displayed are subtle, the messages are so clear and easy to read for young adolescent users. So it's very much an issue of the language around these things changing and therefore fooling the algorithms or bypassing them when it comes to moderation. Exactly, exactly. So at the moment, there is nothing preventing the algorithm. If you like a video, for example, as you can see on my poster, if you like a video, you will immediately, within the next few videos, see something of a very similar kind, and this will continue. And so the average time that a teenager at the moment spends on social media is two hours a day. And just think about it, you can see five videos in 45 seconds, we'll say. And the amount of content, harmful content, that these teenagers are being exposed to is just horrific. And there is, there is a very big stigma around teenage suicide. A lot of people will say that they had mental health problems or blame it on other sources. But if you actually take a look at the content that these teenagers are being exposed to on these platforms, it is completely understandable why they would fall into a slump of sorts. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. Live from the BT Young Scientists Exhibition 2024. Just when you think you've got five minutes to yourself, I'm in the company of Mark Langtry, the science guy from RTE. I mean, Mark, you've had a little bit of a career journey when it comes to moving from sports to uh, science. Um, which one is your true love at the moment, or is it like picking between two children? Well, <laughs> it may seem like I've had this journey from one to the other, but the way I see it is those are my two passions, and at the core of it, the passion is all about education. Five finding out how knowledge can completely transform your world. I see how it was able to help me become a professional footballer, be a better footballer, run faster, jump higher, get injured less. And you can see all the top teams using sports and tech to improve their performances. But at the same time, as being a professional footballer, I was studying theoretical physics. So those are my two passions and combining them changed my world. And seeing the power of education, how it can transform your world is the core message point every bit of work that I do, be it the, the shows here, the TV show, any of the stage work I do, or with my research as well uh, in climate science. So my focus after theoretical physics was in meteorology. And now climate science is the work that I'm doing at King's College London. And no better message to try and inspire action in people as those actions that can help our planet. So the show today is all about one making people understand what's happening. We know our climate's changing. We don't always know what exactly we can do. So it's about understanding what's going on, finding out what you can do, and then empowering you to feel confident to do those things. So that's the nature of uh, being here. I think uh, it's a wonderful arena to do that. I think the BT Young Scientists and Technology Exhibition, you have to say all of it, is like no other. This is my 20th year. I know. 
I came here as a student, uh, absolutely fell in love with everything that's going on, a complete celebration of everything I love with amazing people. And I said, I'm never leaving this place. I came here, did two projects, uh, two years, uh, volunteered, worked with the Institute of Physics while I was studying physics, and then started moving into developing my own shows and my own kind of STEM engagement uh, and science communication adventures. Um, so having been on sort of both sides of the coin, if you will, sort of as a participant and, and later as somebody supporting the event, uh, in a way you've got a captive audience. It's great. People want to learn about science. However, you've had a, a much greater challenge in perhaps approaching people that don't. So what have been the little tricks and techniques that you've found successful over the years? So I think, firstly, you have to know your audience and the setting. So, for example, here's a large scale science show where you have young people with their friends and their phones who've come out of school. So you have to know the atmosphere and the audience and what they want. So today has to be engaging. If they're not engaged, they're not listening. It doesn't matter what your message is. The message needs to be clear, concise, and you need to build the story around it so they care about what you're saying. That goes across all aspects of science communication, but you must be adaptable and flexible to the audience as well. Know what your message is and know the people receiving that message and hooking it in a story or an emotion so they know what they can do and then making sure your message is as clear and simple as possible. Um, so just looking around here, I mean, there's a, a very interesting sort of array of props. We've got a, a trash can. We've got things that look like they can explode. We've got compressed gas. Uh, you know, where do your ideas come from? Well, one from my head. Like you're trying to look around and see where you can bridge across disciplines. I think that's a key strength is looking and bringing in some of the arts. Maybe there's something you've seen at a musical from a film, using pop culture to generate all these ideas. So that's one of my favourite parts of the process, the research and creation part. And I feel that the kind of life I've lived, the kind of diverse experiences I've had, which I always encourage students to have as many diverse experiences as possible. Because you develop different parts of yourself, you challenge yourself in different ways, and you learn from different people. So I'm able to draw from all those different things, bring it together so you see stuff in my science show that sometimes you think how did he even think of that where did that idea come from and yes I got lots of props for this one it's uh, can be tricky to bring climate science into a live interactive demo show so it's trying to get uh, those climate processes create something visual engaging fun interactive that explains what's going on in our climate. So we've got everything around us here. It does look like an explosion. Now that you've mentioned it, I'm like, yeah, this does look a bit crazy. <laughs> so we've got the young scientists finishing up now uh, this weekend. What have you got next? So we have uh, lots of different shows, but also the Explorium Science Centre will be reopening in March, April. So giant interactive science centre in Sandy Verde where you can go and learn about the world around us through really interactive exhibits and experiences. Radio, live from the BT Young Scientists Exhibition. My name is Hannah and we're from Public School in the Trianoda in Yall. My name is Keelan. My name is Katie. So, uh, Marcus, it's an anagram. Tell us what it is. Uh, the Mechanical Axile Rotator Cleaning Up Seashore Spot. It is designed to clean seaweed and it is the first of its kind. So a first of its kind project, you've nothing to, to base it on. So where did the idea come from? 
Um, we wanted to clean our beach in Yall because we noticed that it was getting dirty and we wanted a f an effective way to clean our beaches. So it's quite an elaborate device as I'm looking at it here. So to describe roughly what it is and, and why you chose this particular design. So it's basically a large bin on um, four caster wheels that are set at an angle on an aluminium frame. And, that, and you spin the bin around once you put your seaweed or sand inside. And using centrifugal force, it um, separates out the waste from the seaweed. And there's two sieving layers on the outside. And small waste will get caught in between those two layers. And large pieces of waste, like netting, will get separated and sit at the top of the seaweed. And so what's the response been like so far? There's a wonderful video here where it shows you really getting stuck in and getting great results for your efforts. So uh, what has the feedback been like? And, you know, has the project been as successful as you'd hoped? Um, yeah, we've tested it a couple of times and there's definitely improvements like any good project. But we really think that it would be beneficial to everyone cleaning a beach. I have to say I'm an absolute sucker for people that seem to live the gimmick. So I'm here with two girls uh, who have an absolutely fascinating project about the analysis of radon in Donegal. So please introduce yourselves. I'm Claudia Gibbons. And I'm Maeve Brady. And we go to Loretto Community School in Milford in Donegal. So as I said, this is an, an analysis of radon. Uh, so what is radon and why should we care? So radon gas is a colourless, odourless, tasteless gas that comes up from the ground, causes lung cancer as well. No one really knows about it and it's not really spoken about enough. So we decided for a project that we would analyse the data in our um, county of Donegal and see if we could find any links between you know, what type of house um, we'd be investigating the level of radon. So. So, uh, and just to, you know, for those of you in Radio Land who can't see this, they're actually wearing jumpsuits and gas masks, just to clarify that. So, tell us a little bit about the methodology you used. So, the first thing that we did was we went to the EPA website and looked at the radon risk map, and that showed us the estimated, like, levels for radon in different areas in our county. So what we did was we got a radon barrier here, which was sponsored by our principal, and we took that to different areas in our local community, like Milford, Kerrykeel, Fanad, Illustrin, and we left the radon detector there for four days, two days upstairs, two days downstairs, and we got the short-term average and the long-term average, and we wanted to see, we tested different houses, we tested new houses, old houses, houses without radon barriers, and houses with radon barriers, so we wanted to get varied results. And what did you find in the end? So we found out that older bills tend to have a higher level of radon, which kind of makes sense because they wouldn't have, they'd be less chance of having them having radon barrier. And we got a high level, so the recommended level is 100 bears coats per cubic metre. That's what radon is measuring. The recommended level is below that, as close to zero as possible. And one of the houses that we got in Kerrykeel, our Fanid area, was over 200, which is very high. So what we did was, that house was an old house, it was built in 1992, so it's 32 years old, so they didn't have a radon barrier because the radon barrier legislation came in in 1998. So what we did was we had to find another way. You can install, you can retrofit radon barriers, but the cheapest form of like getting rid of radon levels is just ventilation, so opening windows, installing fans. So on our graph, we showed it went from... After leaving a window open for eight hours in that house, the levels dropped from over 200 to 
just below 100. So that shows the drastic difference that opening windows and using fans makes. So it's such an easy way to reduce your levels to keep yourself safe. This is Tech Radio, live from the RDS. Another sustainability project here, this time looking at the creation of hydrogen. So introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about the project. My name is Kitlin O'Hanlon. And my name is Emer Boyle. And our project is green hydrogen production. So the goal of our project is pretty much to find an alternative fuel to fossil fuels so we can stop greenhouse gas emissions. So faced with the problem of climate change and air pollution, it's becoming increasingly important to stop burning fossil fuels and expand the use of renewable energy generation, such as by using green hydrogen, and that's where our project comes in. So electrolysis, it's a very, um, uh, I suppose, contemporary way of generating energy, uh, comes with a series of problems as well. So what, what does your solution uh, entail here? Well, uh, like you said, electrolysis does come with a lot of problems. Um, a major one is the cost of it. It is obviously very expensive to make loads of electrolysis cells and fuel cells. Um, but we're hoping that we can find a way to make the money to get it. And by 2050, the main fuel source will be green hydrogen, um, or at least a renewable source that's better for our planet. So, as, as was mentioned there, there has to be sort of a, a commercial element to make this viable. So, you know, uh, to what extent were you looking at a commercial partner or did you sit down and go, actually, it's going to cost this much to become viable? Uh, well, it would be for the whole world to be running on green hydrogen um, and for net zero, it would be 200 trillion to have the whole world running on hydrogen. So it's an incredibly expensive project, but one, I suppose, with tremendous applications and benefits for everyone. Yeah, so it is incredibly expensive, but um, the main issue as well for us is trying to get everyone on board with doing it, because obviously greenhouse gas emissions and fossil fuels in general are just a major problem in our earth. So um, we're just trying to get people on board with switching over from petrol or diesel in their cars to putting in electric cars or green hydrogen. Um, and we're trying to get green hydrogen buses and trains. Um, there is already companies doing hydrogen buses, um, for instance, Right Bus and TransLink. Uh, they have them up in Belfast and down here in Dublin as well. But we're hoping to get it more towards green hydrogen because it's just, it's only like, whenever it comes to the exhaust pipe, it's only emitting water vapor instead of the more harmful chemicals that petrol or diesel would produce. Now I'm meeting with Donald Enright from Desmond College in Limerick, who has been looking at ChatGPT. Um, so what has your project been about? My project is about exploring if ChatGPT is a curse or part of the evolution of learning, or is it better or good for learning? I found that ChatGPT is better as most of the negatives for ChatGPT have been ruled out as in cheating, as ChatGPT has, or an AI has been made to detect ChatGPT. So therefore the positives outweigh the negatives. And have you used ChatGPT yourself in, in school projects? I haven't used it in a school project, but I have used it in the junior search 
2022 maths at the higher level in Leaving Cert 2022. So you find that when you're looking at very problem-centric subjects, it's quite useful. But if you're looking at something that requires, you know, making an argument like in English or Irish or something like that, it's not as useful. Uh, not really. It's in the maths it failed miserably as it was very visual. So it got 18% in that. Whereas inside the English you got 57% as it is a lot easier for it to remember everything as in stories and all that. So uh, we're not going to go anywhere uh, anytime soon when it comes to ChatGPT. I think if they do better, then we won't. But if they don't, then more people will go into AIs. Therefore, they'll expand and AIs will eventually get smarter and smarter. Tech Radio, live from the BT Young Scientists Exhibition. Okay, I'm speaking with Nilan Jagan from... Patrician Secondary School out in Kildare who has a very novel solution to a very common problem. I suppose we're all thinking sustainability at the moment and we're all very concerned about the power grid and how to manage our electricity. So what have you been looking at, Nalan? I've been looking to commercialise small wind turbines instead of uh, modern solar panels because you see Ireland, you see solar panels on houses everywhere but you do have a lot of wind that's coming in as well. So why don't we harvest it in household areas themselves instead of using large wind farms? Yeah, because we're very used to seeing offshore wind farms. We're often told that Ireland is a a very windy country. So how viable is this? Are we going to start seeing large windmills popping up in people's gardens maybe? Uh, Like after conducting my research, I kind of broke the commercialization down into three steps that need to happen to actually make wind turbines popular in Ireland. Uh, firstly, companies need to make start, start to make uh, efficient wind turbines that are both cheap, reliable, uh, and just comfortable for people to use. Uh, secondly, people's mindset needs to change to actually accept wind turbines as an aesthetic uh, improvement into homes in society and uh, lastly the government and wind turbine manufacturers need to actually make the turbines a comfortable choice by maybe providing government subsidy to people who have wind turbines and yeah so maybe in the future we'll look at maybe selling our power back into the grid through wind instead of solar uh yeah precisely my name is trinity karthik and i'm in second year in atlan community college now You're tackling a very common problem. It's one that we're very concerned about when it comes to artificial intelligence, and that's the issue of bias. So tell us a little bit about your project and how you set about dealing with that issue. So I I took two case studies for my project. The first case study is that a company receives millions of applications for a Java developer role and is using an AI model to filter those entries. How do we guarantee that the AI model is not biased and filters them based on merit only? My second case study is that a company wants to build a large language model that can write essays and answer any question in a conversational way. In this case, the model is trained with large amounts of texts. How do we guarantee that the model's response is unbiased? And what did you find? So in my two case studies, I developed two bias filters using the programming language OR. And I, I looked over the typical, a typical machine learning workflow, which is 
In short, it's define the scope and identify the use case of the project, collect the relevant data for the use case, split the data set into training and testing, and choose a suitable model architecture for your use case, um, evaluate the model with the uh, with the feed um, feed an algorithm to with the data to train and generate a model, and evaluate the model with the help of test data and any fine tune or alignment is done, and to pro to make sure that the model is accurate in providing results. In this workflow, I have added my bias filter program after the data collection stage. Do you think we're going to be stuck with bias into the future, or do you think that? You know, a lot of our research will be about detecting bias instead of maybe creating better large language models. Well, um, the reason in machine learning everything is based on the data we train the model with. So if the training data is real time or based on the world we live in today, it's obviously going to have some sort of bias. So my project basically removes that bias so the model is trained with unbiased data sets and it gives back fair and equitable outcomes. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. That was Niall Kitson with just a sample of this year's entries from the BT Young Scientist and Technology Exhibition. If you'd like to see what it's all about for yourself, the event finishes uh, this Saturday, 13th of January, and you can get tickets at btyoungscientist.com. That's it for our show this week. We're back again next Friday with a brand new show online and, of course, with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Do remember to share our podcast as well with a friend. Just tell them to look up Tech Radio Ireland on Apple, Spotify, and now also available on YouTube. On to next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, as always, take care. Remember, you can get the latest Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters, and more at our website, techcentral.ie. Share the knowledge and invite a friend to listen. Search Apple, Spotify, or YouTube for Tech Radio Ireland or listen with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Tech Radio is produced by dustpod.io for techcentral.ie. From me, Artemis, live long and prosper. Tech Radio.